This Thacker Slate podcast is hosted by Connie Thacker and Allison Slate, two experienced attorneys who believe honesty, transparency, and knowledge are key to achieving the best legal outcomes. A variety of topics, particularly those related to sensitive family law matters, are candidly covered by Connie and Allison in a way that's refreshing, timely, and practical for listeners. Welcome, everyone, to another Thacker Slate podcast. We're uh, pleased to have Randy Flood and Ben Burgess here with us today. And our topic today is going to be evaluations, what types they are, uh, when they're necessary and when they're not necessary, and how they're helpful in the arena of divorce uh, with custody and parenting time. So I think we're going to lead off a little bit with uh, Ben and Randy just to sort of talk about uh, those evaluations and introduce themselves. Good morning. I'm uh, I'm Ben Burgess, and I'm Randy Flood. We're both uh, psychologists, and you're both with what organization? Mountain Hill Center for Counseling and Consultation here in Grand Rapids, right? Here in Grand Rapids, correct. And how long have you been with the center? I've only been there uh, a, a few years. Uh, Randy, you have uh, a more extensive history. Yeah, I, I started there in 2000. So great, and uh, Randy is an author of. Uh, several books in the area. So both of these uh, guys that we have with us today are without a doubt experts in the area. So let's just sort of kick it off and talk about evaluations and tell us what types there are and when we need them in the divorce arena. So the purpose of uh, the types of evaluations that we're talking about, that's to provide information to the court. Uh, And that can be regarding custody and parenting time, Um, We can look at more specific issues like partner violence uh, or substance abuse or mental health issues. Uh, We can look at resist and refusal dynamics. Randy, what kind of evaluations uh, give us sort of a a broad view of what kind there are? Because there's multiple types of uh, evaluations that we can request in these cases. And we usually request them when there's a dispute as to who's going to have custody and who's going to have parenting time and what's that going to look like. And we're looking at sort of the psychological profile of the parties. But what are the different types of evaluations? Well, as Ben was talking about, we have the full custody and parenting time evaluations um, when we're looking at um, just that, the the outcome of custody and parenting time for the parents. Um, Then we also have um, evaluations that look at specific issues and someone like the friend of the court may be offering an overall evaluation and we are asked to specifically address like uh, factor K, like domestic violence allegations, and we focus on that and that gets incorporated into the overall evaluation or a mental health issue, for example. I would assume that the uh, order that comes from the court is what really tells you guys what you're supposed to do, right? Uh, That's exactly right. The order, uh, and it's very helpful when we can help craft the order uh, before it's signed. Um, That will direct us uh, regarding what questions we need to answer if there's a mental health issue, if we need to address the custody and parenting time factors, um, if substance abuse is an issue uh, or concern, um, that outlines exactly what we need to do. Is it best for uh, the attorney to contact you first? And I'm I'm sure Allison could probably comment on this. It seems like before you get involved, it it would make sense for the judge and the lawyer to contact you to make sure you're available to do it. Usually that's helpful. Yeah, I think so, but we don't um, see it happening all the time, right? Right. It, it, right. Sometimes we'll just uh, all of a sudden be in possession of an order that directs us to do something right. or, or is too vague 
uh, and doesn't tell us exactly what questions we need to answer. Uh, it might just say, go to see Randy or Ben and answer for an evaluation and, and doesn't outline specifically what we need to do. So uh, again, we need to have input into that order and, and it's helpful to, uh, to help draft uh, exactly what the order right. says. Right. And that was going to be my question. What are some of the biggest failures you see as part of orders? What's missing? What should be in there that you guys see day to day? I think Ben referred to the the vagueness of that. I'm doing, I did an evaluation right now and it was so vague that now the attorneys are going back and arguing about what the evaluation was supposed to answer. And so, okay. it, so it becomes very important that the attorneys get together and if they need to with the judge and make a decision about what we're evaluating and having that clearly spelled out and then we're able to perform the evaluation um, and, appropriately. And, and even being more specific just about the, the details uh, down to who is paying, how it's being paid, uh, the amount of the retainer uh, that we work off of, uh, Sometimes uh, the order needs to direct the party to sign releases or to provide specific information. Uh, it, really, all uh, of the details need to be in there. Is psychological testing always part of an evaluation? Well, the three domains that we tend to gather data from, um, one of those being psychological testing. Um, we also do direct interviews of the parties um, in joint interviews with a parent and child, those kinds of um, um, ways of gathering data. And then the third domain is collateral um, information. And that can be through documents such as previous psychological evaluations, school records, um, legal, legal <coughs> records, legal records, CPS and, reports. And then interviews with people who know the family. It could be a doctor, it could be a, a child therapist, a teacher, um, and get information that way. And then we put all three together and analyze it and come up with our conclusions. And what's the average number of hours you put into an evaluation? I guess that also goes to cost. What what are we looking at in terms of cost? Uh, the average number of hours, I suppose, depends on the complexity of the evaluation and what questions we need to answer. A full custody and parenting time evaluation is going to require a lot of time. It's it's a, a time-consuming and expensive process. Um, it, we're not just, it, it's very important. We're not just going to uh, give some recommendations without doing uh, extensive work. Yeah, it's the due diligence that goes into it, and it's the whole court system that has that. It's like the cliche we always have, you can have as much justice as you can afford. The whole process in and of itself with uh, the, the lawyers and the litigation is all very expensive. So I think the consumers need to be aware of how expensive the divorce process can be, how expensive doing these custody evaluations when they're fighting over custody for their kids and parenting time. This is really uh, not something that's inexpensive when you're getting involved uh, with your kids. And I guess, too, just to back up a little bit for the general public to understand that in order is uh, a result of a motion that's filed with the court and the court speaks through its orders. And so the order needs to be clear as to what Ben and Randy would be doing in their evaluations. And then once you start the evaluation, what's the protocol for, for all these valuations? Does everybody do them the same? Do people do them differently? Do they have a map that you're supposed to follow? How does that work? Well, one of the things that I 
wanted to say is that the reason we have to do such a thorough job is because when we have good attorneys on the case, like you guys, if you don't like our findings, then you tend to go after our protocol and say the protocol wasn't invalid, therefore the findings are invalid. And so for us, one of the ways that we protect ourselves and to be able to do a good job for the parents and the family and the court is to do a thorough job and not cut corners. Um, because it's really important and children's and parents' lives are on, on the line. So the protocol is a matter of, like I said, the three domains of doing the interviews and doing the collateral documents and then doing the psychological testing. And one of the things that we talk about is having a scientific process of multiple hypotheses. And so you develop hypotheses based on meeting with the parties, based on talking with the attorneys, and then you explore which hypothesis tends to have validity to it and draw your conclusions after and, and developing that. You test each hypothesis by uh, finding data for and against yep. uh, that idea. And that takes time. Staying yeah. away from confirmation bias. And I think that that's the thing yeah, that... Let's it, talk it, a little bit about that. What is confirmation bias? What... Give us well, some evaluators or therapists um, who tend to have a niche, uh, a specialty, uh, an interest in a particular area, such as, for example, domestic violence. If you um, are really zealous about um, evaluating domestic violence and holding people accountable, then you can go into an evaluation with a confirmation bias with allegations of domestic violence and find a, um, a positive finding of, of domestic violence perhaps in a case where there might be alienation dynamics going on. So you got to have an open scientific mind and say it's possible that domestic violence is occurring, but it's also possible that the allegations are exaggerated or extreme and you have to explore both ends of it and let the data tell you what's going on rather than your ideology or your, your 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 bias in in approaching it. Are there ethical protocols too that you guys have to follow in addition to sort of the scientific stuff that you go through? It, absolutely. Um, it, as uh, psychologists, uh, we're bound by the APA guidelines, uh, and also there are some aspirational guidelines provided by the Association of Family and Conciliation Courts, uh, and following those guidelines that helps to eliminate the cognitive biases that we all come to our work with. Uh, so following a protocol, using multiple data sources, uh, using multiple hypotheses, we can come to uh, a more scientific conclusion, a more valid, reliable conclusion. Randy, what advice would we give or would you suggest we give our clients when they're showing up to your office for an evaluation? And what comes to mind is a case that you and I both worked on where the gentleman was always in sandals even in the middle of winter. Right. Um, probably not <laughs> ideal to have him appear in sandals in this context. So whatever advice you could give us sort of geared toward that bias and, and making a good first impression. Well, there's going to be a balance between, you know, respecting the decorum of, of an evaluation in a professional environment and coming prepared to, to, to um, present yourself in a way that you at least look competent and look prepared um, and look like you're aware and have good judgment as to what the circumstances are. Um, but the other thing I think is important is to helping consumers um, and participants know that they can be human. 
and that we don't expect them to be perfect. And I think that sometimes they can come in thinking that they have to be this perfect parent and then they come across as too defensive and guarded and they don't tell us about anything about their lives. And then that can be one of the worst presentations is that we as psychologists look at them and say that they're guarded and what are they hiding? So being being okay and realistic that we expect them to have parenting flaws and so not to hide those from us but to be more authentic and honest and that's going to come across better in our experience than people who are overly defended. And what should they bring with them? I mean, should they bring materials or should their attorney be preparing the materials in advance and getting that information to you? Um, just on first impressions alone, if someone walks into your office with a you know cart full of paperwork, you're probably going to think of them as probably disorganized and they send off that first impression. Yeah, I, I think that um, people, we orient them to the evaluation process in the first um, interview and we tell them what we need from them. Some of them come prepared. Um, if otherwise they, they are given directions to go and get documents and, and get the information that we find helpful, um, such as social media posts, email feeds, text feeds that provide a behavioral um, specific um, outcome that gives us, you know, um, verification of the allegations. It says if my if my co-parent is talking bad about me to other people in the community and then they demonstrate that by showing his Facebook posts where she or he are, you know, actually are, you know, slandering them, then that can give us concrete evidence that that's happening rather than someone merely speaking about it. So those documents are helpful. Ben, I know that you and Randy both have an evaluation form that you have clients fill out at the onset of the process. Maybe you can talk a little bit about that form and probably um, maybe some of the worst answers you've seen. Uh, that, that form asks for information on a wide variety of, uh, uh, different areas, uh, looking at family history, legal history, education, uh, all of those different, uh, biopsychosocial, uh, subjects, um, Worst answers off of that, I, I would have to think about for uh, a moment, but off the top of my head, some people are really sarcastic. Toward the other parent, you mean? In, toward the other parent, um, particularly if we just evaluate one parent, I'll, I'll see that. Um, I don't think that I've seen that when I'm doing a more comprehensive evaluation. Well, that but, brings up a good point, though, and, and something that you just said, Ben, that I think that the public needs to understand, too, is sometimes you guys are hired just to evaluate one parent. So if, if, if we need expert testimony, we may hire one of you just to evaluate our clients, and you may not necessarily see the other clients. So oftentimes, it's just one party, and then sometimes the order is for two parties, right? So sometimes you're just doing an individual, like, to determine whether or not they're a batterer, because we've got a domestic violence claim. I mean, wh what kind of client do we really have, and what is he and she really, uh, from a psychological perspective, involved in, Right. Correct. And then, so how long do they usually take? I mean, are we talking weeks, months? I mean, how long does a custody evaluation really, uh, when you're doing both parties and you're doing the collateral data like you talked about and you're doing the review of the information, like a full-blown custody evaluation for custody and parenting time, how long is that really going to take? That, uh, for me, to get all of those appointments in, uh, because it's multiple meetings with 
with everybody. How many meetings generally do you have with them all? Um, I, probably on average, uh, I would say three meetings with each parent. And then do you, uh, you interview the kids? Yes. I think that's the biggest question for parents with kids is how much are their kids going to be involved in the process and how do they prepare their kids to be involved in the process? Try not to over-prepare them in terms of getting them to, you know, make sure you say this, make sure you say that, because we pick up on that as though the co- kids have been coached. Especially um, younger kids. Right. Uh, it, you can ask them, what did your mom or dad want you to tell me? And and they'll say that. <laughs> and they'll have an answer, right? right. Yeah. Why are you here? <laughs> yeah. um, who's to- who told you about me and what yeah. my role is? And then they'll all, they'll be honest and tell you, what my dad said or my mom said. And then you know, sometimes what, the, what their mom or dad said is appropriate. Other times the kids tell us way too much information about, well, they told me not to talk about this, but make sure I talk about that. Um, so make sure you don't over-prepare your children. But I think to say these, these people are here to help our family. You know, our family is struggling right now and they're here to help us. And they're That's gonna good ask advice. You, yeah. They're going to ask and you they questions. they want to ask you some questions. And right. you just be honest and, and they're here to help us. And Ben, you and I have talked a little bit about, you know, how you meet the kids and sometimes that's not in a clinical setting, correct? Because sometimes you want to meet them maybe out for ice cream or some setting that's more comfortable for them so that they might be able to divulge more information than they would in that clinical setting. Uh, That's true. Um, There have been times where I've interviewed children in their home, um, meeting them out in public. There have been times where I've done it at school. Uh, So they don't always have to come into the office. Okay, that's good and, to know. And with, with younger kids, uh, you know, you can play Legos. You can color pictures to, to get the process right. going. What do you think is the, um, I mean, I know we have overlays of psychological impacts of children going through the divorce process, right? They're impacted by that. They're separated uh, from a parent, uh, whether it's a good parent or a bad parent. Uh, kids generally want to migrate to their parents regardless of their actions, right? So we see that a lot. What do you think the psychological impact is of a child going through a custody evaluation when they're sort of being pulled by both ends and both parents want them and both parents want the majority of the time uh, for them? I mean, is there any research out there on the impact and maybe even the long-term impact of what happens with these kids? And maybe there isn't. I mean, that's just a question I was just wondering about. The divorce process for most families within a year or two, uh, families tend to reorganize and kind of move on. With a custody evaluation, the idea or the hope is that we can find out what's best for them, but it is admittedly a stressful process. And there's anxiety and tension and animosity and it can escalate things in the short term right. for them. And it can get polarized and kids end up picking up on, you know, there's going to be a winner or a loser. There's a bad parent. There's a good parent. And kids tend to be predisposed to be um, cognitively black and white, especially young children. Sure. So they can get swept up into that polarized environment and they end up choosing um, a, you know, the most favored parent. And sometimes they can get into rejecting a good enough parent, and that's when we see what we call those reject and refuse dynamics, and they're unfairly or unduly rejecting a parent that's good enough in the because of the stress of the of the divorce. Right. Well, we've got a few minutes left, and so I want to talk a little bit about uh, psychological testing and what goes into psych testing, what you learn from it. Um, 
<clears throat> what are the you know the diagnoses that we the common ones that we see that make the divorce process difficult? You know, we see borderline personality disorder, narcissism, uh, bipolar. All those things have a that mental health component has an impact on the custody evaluations. I mean, how do you do them? What do they benefit for you? And do you ever test the kids? Um, Medoff came up with a list of goals for psychological testing, the questions that we answer with our testing or that, that we help answer with our testing. You know, we want to find out if a parent can be consistent and reliable, emotionally available, um, provide cognitive stimulation, advocacy, protection. Testing can help us answer those questions. It can help us answer the the questions regarding co-parenting. Can you cheat on the psych evals? I mean, can well, you prepare for them? Can I knew you, that can was you, coming. Can you make yourself look better on them? I mean, I mean, and what do they really, I know the MMPI is like, what? how many questions do you take on the Five, MMPI? 567 and true and false True and false. And, and then from that, I mean, can you detect, I mean, I see some reports from you guys that say it looks like they're trying to show themselves in a great right. light, in a better yeah. light, and they're posturing. That I mean, how do you get to that conclusion from a bunch of true-false questions? They're norm tests, and so there are actually particular scales that we interpret, and there are some validity and reliability scales uh, on there. And so that's the first thing we look at is, you know, are they approaching the testing in a way that we can find the testing useful? And if they are very defended and they're actually lying on the tests, and then we can't really find the clinical scales that useful because they're going to be most likely depressed and not showing what's really going on for that person. So that's one of the things that you would tell your parents when they're coming in for an evaluation. One of the worst things they could do is come across as super defended and lying. Right. Trying to appear overly put the, virtuous. Put the skunks on the table and because we're gonna we're gonna smell them under the table. Right. And so you might as well put them out there for us to really evaluate and look what's going on. Um, and a parent who who knows their flaws and has accountability, we actually have greater faith in their ability to manage them than the parent who doesn't know that they even have issues. Yeah, and I would imagine you see from the results of the testing some, it, it just seems to me, you know, having done this for so long, that we do see a lot of mental health components in these high-conflict cases. So somewhere in the mix, there's usually something going on. And do you are you able to delineate that something going on from the psych testing? It, it can help us provide or, or help us answer that question. And you brought up diagnoses uh, a minute ago, and... You know, a diagnosis is important, but we need to look at the behavior too. So, somebody who has uh, a, di a depression diagnosis um, may lay around on the couch all day, not get their kids on the school bus in the morning, not do homework at night because they're too depressed to function. Somebody else with a depression diagnosis may go to therapy, take their medicine, struggle through the day, and still take care of their kids. Right. Uh, with the same diagnosis. Right. So we need to see the behavior behind Right, the and diagnosis. some people can have a, <clears throat> not have a mental health diagnosis and be a horrible parent. So we can't, right, yeah, we we've seen that, right? So we, we see the psych over, test, the comeback clean. interpret the psychological right. testing. That's why we gather data from those other domains because psych testing alone 
can't tell us about a, a person's competency. Well, and I think that's really important for even judges to hear because Correct. a lot of times we'll see the judges will say, or even some of the lawyers will say, well, they've got a clean psych profile, but they're doing crazy stuff in the in the case. And right. so it's like, it just doesn't match up to the behavior. Right. And it doesn't mean that it's you know clean and we should just go ahead and move on and give them the parenting time, right? Correct. T- testing can never be more than one small part of yeah. an overall evaluation. Wow, that's great. Well, I, I want to thank you guys uh, tremendously for coming and chatting with us today. And we've covered a lot of things for consumers and for judges. Thank and you for, for listening to, to this episode of our Thacker Slate podcast. So thank you both very much. If you much. have additional questions, do not hesitate to contact us at 616-888-3810 or visit our website, thackerslate.com, for additional information. 